we are in a generation where you just have to continuously learn new things and not be afraid of barriers to entry. Of course, it's not easy. It's not something that you can go off and learn Python in, in a month. You know, It will take you some time. However, we are really in a generation where we need to look at knowledge as something of a commodity. You need to go and acquire it if you need it. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Paul Turn. In the day, I work a pretty normal job as a doctor in Singapore. But in my spare time, I interview successful people, mainly in Asia, with interesting career paths, hobbies or side projects. I trace their stories right back to their humble beginnings, and I ask, what do these unconventional journeys teach us? And can we similarly be more imaginative in what we do? Welcome to the Alternative CV Podcast. Hello listeners, welcome back to the Alternative CV Podcast, where it is my job to speak to people who have achieved success by building their careers, hobbies or side projects in a non-traditional fashion. We find out about my guests' journeys and what they learned along the way. In 2013, back when Dr. Niam Kiren was a newly minted consultant endocrine surgeon, he found himself needing to integrate different data sets for his research. However, back then data was distributed and siloed meaning that there was no easy way of linking different data sources together to build models. Realizing this need, Dr. Niam set out to redesign and build a system that centralized data and allowed clinicians and computer scientists to collaborate to build predictive AI models using these datasets. This platform is called Discovery AI, and today it serves some of the largest hospitals in Singapore. Dr. Niam himself is the Group Chief Technology Officer of the National University Health System and the Deputy Chief Medical Informatics Officer at the National University Hospital of Singapore. And these are some of the largest hospitals in Singapore. He has a special focus on artificial intelligence research and implementation in healthcare. Besides this, Dr. Niam is a consultant thyroid and endocrine surgeon. He specializes in thyroid oncology and minimally invasive endoscopic and robotic thyroid surgery and his other research interests include endocrine and metabolic surgery. This is a story about how Dr. Niam gathered his team to build a Discovery AI. Along the way, we also talk about related topics such as taking a year out to pursue other interests and how not to get lost along the way, the need for clinicians to do more than just a clinical practice in this day and age, as well as interesting technological advances that will reshape the future of medicine. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed talking to Dr. Niam. Let's listen in. All right. Yeah, let's go. Dr. Niam Kiyuan, welcome to the show. Yeah. yeah, hi. Oh, well, thank you for coming. So you are the Group Tech Chief Technology Officer at, at National University Health System, which is one of the largest groups of hospitals in Singapore. You have a special focus on artificial intelligence research and implementation in healthcare. And I suppose you're best known for kind of driving the development of the Discovery AI platform and its implementation at NUHS, which, all of which we'll kind of talk about later. But really what I wanted to get started on was to go right back to the start and talk about the genesis of how you became fascinated with AI or machine learning, which seems to really be a dominant feature in your career right now. So do you remember what prompted you to take your career in that direction? Yeah, thanks for that uh, kind introduction. And I think uh, this is a very pertinent and pressing question uh, in, these, in these times, especially because uh, we know that quite a lot of the healthcare AI is going to transform the way we work and we will probably probably see uh, implementation in clinical care in the coming years uh, which I think will be appropriate for 
clinicians and, uh, and non-clinicians as well to know what are some of these things that might potentially change and disrupt our current workflows. Talk around a uh, talk a, a bit around what how I got into this. I think this was this goes back as far as probably six or seven years ago. So I think we go back to about 2013 when I first became a did my surgical specialty, specialist exam and became a uh, consultant in um, endocrine surgery at the National University Hospital. Mm-hmm. So at that point of time, we were trying to do we were trying to do research not just in endocrine surgery but in many other areas of uh, investigation, and we, we encountered a lot of issues that are not unique to us. I mean, any researcher who needs to undertake data analysis would encounter the issues of you know siloed data, mm-hmm. uh, issues of the identification and the ability to link data sets together and use them effectively. Other issues relate to things like compute, uh, the availability of such compute, and of course the consideration of whether or not um, these compute can be scaled up, right? So, mm-hmm. and lastly is to think about, you know, we are not um, computer scientists or a statistics trained, so we actually needed help from others to undertake this this level of research. So in order to solve all these issues, initially I, I, I had a really hard time trying to come up with ways to address these issues on a project-by-project basis, but it soon became apparent that these problems could be solved at a larger scale and you have greater efficiencies if all the data was um, sort of aggregated into a single platform. Mm and identified with a uniform type of code. So that was a project that I undertook back in 2013, and which went through about 2015. And in that time, you know, it was the beginning of what we will consider as big data and um, machine learning. So this was an interesting time because it was a relatively unexplored field. And I was very lucky to have computer science colleagues who worked with me to develop certain what we have what we have been considered AI algorithms then for clinical use. And that was how all this started, right? It started off as a desire to undertake a research project and following the times and the availability of uh, compute such as the GPUs that allowed us to advance new science into artificial intelligence. Mm. And it was also from this same basis that we've um, worked out how to run a, a translational data platform at scale, which was which became Discovery AI. I see. So, you, you know, kind of putting uh, yourself back in your shoes back then, um, you could definitely see the challenges and the problems, but did you ever get a sense of the that these problems were like extremely large and the solution needed to tackle these problems were extremely large? Or because it seems like you just plowed straight you know, headlong and then decided to to just solve it and gather a team around you, which eventually did pay off. Yeah, you're right. So absolutely, this this is the problem. These are not uh, small scale problems by any stretch of imagination. But I think one has to take the problems a step at a time rather than to rather than to try to solve all the problems at one go. Mm. So we, we pretty much did the projects along the way and we, we had little blessings as we went along to get the data aggregated, uh, cleaned up and organized in a particular way. And again we, we 
we needed help from many sectors, uh, including our collaborators in NUS uh, School of Computing, our colleagues in Academic Information Office at NUH. So by no means was this a single effort um, to solve the issue. It was much. It was pretty much you know improvement along the way that culminated in a distinct platform and solutions. I see. So a really kind of step-by-step process. So what, you Correct. know, kind of breaking it down, breaking the problem down, what was your entry point um, into this? I think as a clinician, I, I had the benefit of knowing about what matters at the end. Many of the previous attempts to solve these problems were very technically driven efforts that resulted in a technical solution that was not very practical for, or on a clinical basis. But I was determined that um, at the project level, I wanted to have a, an outcome that would be clinically relevant and hopefully scalable throughout the cluster that would benefit many clinicians. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, so if, if you... When you first pitched it, for example, to the institutional review board or or to whoever was going to give you, for example, funding for this project, I'm just interested to know, like, how what was the scope of the project that you pitched it then? Because I can see that this kind of iteratively grew, uh, began bigger, and then became scalable and deployable across the entire cluster. So again, I think the the best way to answer this question is that no good idea would go, and certainly no good idea would go. Um, to, to the trash can, right? So I, I think from day one, I was very convinced that this, what I needed to do for a single project will be applicable for hundreds of projects. Mm. It wasn't just me that needed data, needed compute, or, or needed others to help with your uh, data analysis. Every single researcher in the, in the cluster would have needed the same thing. So when I pitched this to management at that point of time, and I remember but this was in about 2016. They, they were, of course, uh, initially a bit skeptical, but as I started delivering the results on a project-to-project basis, mm-hmm. I think they were convinced that investing in the platform would lead to a, a scalable solution, which, which is what we see today, right? Today, Discovery hosts over 70 research groups, up to 150 people. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- this is done at the scale that I would say is still... Uh, is still pretty initial, and certainly we have a, a fair amount of way to go towards uh, supporting the whole ecosystem of researchers and clinicians in NUHS. But still, you know, as long as we understand that it's a good idea, it's an it's an idea that would benefit most people or, uh, who are undertaking this kind of data uh, intensive research. I, I, you know, that's how we, we went about doing the pitch. Uh, of course, like I said earlier, there there were some blessings along the way. Uh, but given the timing was actually very good as well. I mean, mm. uh, in, in the sense that we had the emergence of, of popularization of AI at the same time. So yeah, I think you, you kind of put two and two together that resulted in a in, in an outcome that we see today. Mm, yeah. And I think, which I get, this is the same kind of theme that I can see across many other people's stories as well. It is also about riding on a wave. And in this case, it was, as you were saying, talking about the popularization of AI. Was there, especially, you know, AI and medicine specifically? So uh, personally, did you kind of see that, yes, this was a very big thing that was coming and, and therefore you wanted to be personally involved in it and to gain expertise in it yourself as well? 
Yeah, absolutely, Paul. I think when I started off, actually, it wasn't so much in AI and medicine that, that was the beginning of, of this. Actually, I, I started off wanting to do medical devices back in 2013 and 14. But along the way, as, as you look at medical devices, I was actually anyway more inclined towards devices that collected data mm. or, or had some kind of sensor input. So it was from there that I kind of decided that, okay, well, I mean, clearly the problem with all these uh, IoT sensors was that you needed an integrated platform to put all the data together. So that's the motivation to kind of, it was quite natural to, to want to branch off into working on data and AI. Mm. Yeah, it seems like everything kind of lined up and pointed you in this direction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I felt that it wasn't, uh, I suppose I was one of the earlier people to recognize this, but by no means was it just myself. I, I had a lot of um, colleagues who who are now my close collaborators who helped um, put all these um, together. And and also, uh, one thing worth mentioning is that we invested a significant amount of time in building a community as well. And we did this through a, a series of uh, annual, what we call datathons and expos. So a datathon essentially is it's a bit like a hackathon where we provide the data clinicians to provide the clinical statements and we have groups of 10 people, usually a combination of data scientists and clinicians solving particular problems over a short period of time, like two, two and a half days or so. This allowed us to kind of build up the interest as well as to build a community of people who would be would now become our community of researchers and data scientists undertaking projects on uh, discovery AI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I think community is something which I'd like to come back to later because of, of course, the strength of the platform is the fact that you can have many different clinical groups interfacing with it and they're asking their own clinical questions and having a larger community definitely powers the research, you know, in the, in another order of magnitude. But just coming back to, to really Genesis, right? Right at the start, I'm interested to find out actually at the point in time, how much kind of technical coding knowledge you had. And the reason why I asked this is because I wanted to get a feel for this. You know, often uh, a, a large barrier to entry people face is that they, they, they think, okay, I don't know enough about this and I don't have enough technical expertise and they self limit in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good question, Paul. My, my suggestion to this is that I, I would be first to tell you I don't code uh, in any form of professional basis. When, when I started, certainly I didn't have any coding experience. So what I did was to really work very closely with computer scientists to undertake these initial projects. And those, those projects grew and as they, those projects became more developed, I, I had to understand a lot of new concepts. And this kind of um, plays to, you know, the idea that, you know, we are in a generation where you, you just have to continuously learn new things and not be afraid of barriers to entry. Of course, it's not easy. It's not something that you can learn. You can go off and learn Python in, in a month, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it will take you some time. However, we are really in a generation where we need to look at knowledge as, as like, um, something of a commodity you can quick you need to go and acquire it if you need it it's not something that or oh, if you've never done computer science you should not go into computer science so uh, that was the attitude i had uh, initially and secondly i think it was 
I managed to solve one of the problems that there was a barrier to many of these collaborations, which is the ability to talk, to have a crosstalk between medicine and computing, mm. uh, to be comfortable in both languages and to sort of sort of inspire your computer science colleagues to learn some things about medicine as well. And, you know, you as a clinician, you probably know that we have very specialized terms and you will not believe when we started how um, difficult it was for me to communicate with the computer scientists. It was literally what we call chicken and duck, you know, um, speaking, right? Because there were, there were, there were kind of uh, differences in the way we interpreted the same things. So I just wanted to be sure that it took us quite a while to get to a point where we can uh, actually communicate and work well together. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing which really stands out for me is how, you know, we're talking about knowledge being a commodity and, and you acquiring knowledge, but your process by which you acquired knowledge was one where it was like in the course of you putting a project together. So it made this knowledge very practical and very useful. And it was a very organic way of acquiring this knowledge. And I suppose, yeah. And I, I think the other thing that sounds to me is that you had a bias towards action. Like I I can imagine myself also thinking, you know, oh, I need to say, for example, do, do courses or pick up uh, the knowledge before I start on a project like this, but then you just went and went ahead and did it. Yeah, quite, quite, quite true. Uh, actually, I wouldn't advise people trying to do courses before they start project. They should start the projects and and learn those things along the way. There, you know, because as as clinicians, you can actually manage the, and as PIs, really, you can actually manage the project in a way such that it allows you time to out certain skills along the way to do the project and i would i would strongly advise people to have a deep interest in it because it's not something that oh you know go off and learn something about uh, machine learning or deep learning it's not quite like that right i, I think what one of the key things that underlie all these results and all these efforts is the passion for it uh, i think some you know one must be actually interested in it to want to, you know, go through some of the math and uh, the coding stuff that are required for you to understand and to build some of these uh, tools. Mm. Mm, yeah. And the passion also comes with seeing the progress in the project, I suppose. Yeah, it's true. Like I said, you know, it's important to, at, in the first instance, um, have a passion for the results that you want and also being in the area in this field where, uh, it's relatively foreign to most clinicians, right? Uh, you, you've got to have a bit of comfort in operating in this space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can, is it right to say that your role in, in this project, that the key role that you played was bring together the two, what was seemingly siloed fields of medicine and computer science and getting them to talk to each other. And then I suppose... That's how, you know, when we're talking, when we're talking about community now, this is also the kind of role that you're playing in like matchmaking, like getting these two communities to talk more to each other. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a key enabler. It's one of the key things that you need to do before you have a community of people. But there are other aspects to this, and maybe I can just speak about the really boring aspect of governance. You really need to get the governance right. Um, in the first instance, because, uh, you know, for people to want to work together, they need to know that, that the play is fair mm-hmm. and you know, data is being handled in, in, in the proper way such that there is no 
risk of data loss or uh, data being exposed to people who are not supposed to be uh, using that data. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back to this project as well, uh, another thing which I like to pick your brains on is about you know setting your vision because I imagine that in order to to do something of this scale, you have to have different parties buy into it, and you know senior management, clinicians, and then on the other side, computer scientists as well, and more and more people to be attracted to it. Did you ever face challenges in 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 you know selling this vision, and if so? How do you overcome it, or how how do you necessarily pitch it? You know, such that people will be drawn towards it. Yeah, I think it's it's difficult initially because there was very little understanding as to what AI was, and to a lot of especially senior clinicians, they think this is another yet another fashion. You know, uh, some kind of uh, computer game. You know, that's happening and it will disappear, but. You know, in, in the so many years that we've been doing this, we've seen that uh, AI is pretty much a long cycle trend and with sort of uh, mainstream news and uh, publications coming coming out, I think more and more people are understanding what exactly AI is. And on my part, I, I think I have to be able to convey the clinical benefits um, to say, for example, management or senior clinicians for them to understand and, and hopefully adopt some of these uh, AI tools that we have built. And those were the, the, on one hand, that was the challenge with the clinicians. On the other hand, with the computer scientists, the, the challenge wasn't so much of convincing them that the project is worthy. I think for them, it's about ease, the ease in which they can access and use the data. And, and again, this is where uh, having a, a platform was very, very useful to tell them that, you know, instead of you spending months, if not years, trying to help your clinicians uh, or your collaborators acquire and process that data. Here, here the data is sitting here right for you to, to, to just run your analysis directly. So I think on both sides, uh, on one hand, you needed convincing. And yeah. on the other hand, you needed to build the infrastructure to allow people to use the data well. Yeah, I suppose I can see. Yeah, the product kind of speaks for itself for the clinicians. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Besides this as well, you have recently been involved in another company, Medilot, which which you you started and I think it as I understand it, it provides a way for healthcare records to be centralized and used either by other medical professionals or by like researchers and companies who wish to make use of these large data sets to build uh, analytical applications. What what's the story behind this company and how it got started? Okay, that's interesting. This is something that went back actually a couple of years you know, with one of my collaborators, Professor Ui, uh, in the School of Computing, and we were working on a number of projects. And he, he was very interested in applying blockchain technologies to healthcare data. And that's how this particular company was spun off. Uh, actually, I'm just advising them rather than you know having a, a state or anything like that in the company. So. Mm-hmm. They, they, they have very great deep technology around healthcare blockchains and certainly with like, like any other blockchain, uh, these technologies require some time to be mature uh, enough for mainstream practical use. So I, I think they are actually addressing this, these uh, issues at the point. And the other kind of interface that we have to be always aware of is the, the kind of, I would say, the, the kind of 
regulations around data sharing and PDPA. So, so those are the things that were in our minds when we, when when this was a first mooted, and certainly there's still some way in terms of work needed to ensure that the kind of regulated medical data can be correctly shared between parties going forward. Mm. But just from this example alone, you can see that your experience or, or the fact that you straddle both the, in a way, computing and uh, medical fields is a is a is an era where because because you straddle both these fields a lot of these opportunities like present themselves to you yeah so uh, again right it, it's all about um, timing so uh, if, if you didn't have the the sort of opportunity and the effort to reach out to other um, disciplines like computing right then none of these would have been possible so yeah to your point I think it's also about being open to opportunities and taking the opportunities as they come. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. So kind of taking this conversation a bit more like philosophical kind of direction, prior to us starting this interview, you were talking a bit about how medical careers are changing or rather professional careers in general are changing. And 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 I suppose in your example, as what we we're talking about, you know, having, building different expertise in, in different domains did really contribute to uh, your career progression. Can you, perhaps looking back at the entirety of your journey, obviously your journey is not complete so far, but looking back at everything, how how has this theme really stuck out to you? And what are some of your reflections on it? Yeah, okay. so I think the first thing to say is that clinical careers are changing. In the past, you completed your training, you were pretty much set for life as a clinician and you can just do clinical work and, and not be concerned about anything else. Uh, I think that's increasingly being disrupted uh, where we are seeing more demands uh, being placed on clinicians who after you've completed their training to do things like research, education and administration. So especially so in, in public practice. And if you consider what happens in private practice, they, they are also under pressure from competition to grow their business uh, beyond just uh, their clinical practice, right? Mm. So so re- whether or not you're public or private practice, there, there w- there's going to be a need to differentiate one's clinical abilities uh, from say, the others in, in the same field. So to that point, within uh, I see it mainly for the public sector, uh, where you know there are ample opportunities for people to develop research, uh, administration, and educational goals. Mm. And I, I suppose in my career track, I would want to add this new kind of track, which is an innovator kind of track or technologist kind of track. Now, what's the difference between this track and say a researcher track? Well, the, the difference being that as an innovator, you you are less typecast into what most people consider basic science because you, you are really what I really am doing is taking science that either we create ourselves or with others to translate it into clinical practice. So that's a key differentiator between, say, for example, a clinician scientist and a clinician innovator. Mm. And increasingly, NMRC is uh, recognizing that there needs to be a track for innovators to actually bring products to the market and not just produce science. So, so to that end, I think we are seeing the beginnings of what could be a very popular career path for clinicians, apart from just doing their 
pure specialized clinical work, which is to undertake in areas of uh, innovation. And specifically to innovation, I mean, of course, we can talk about medical devices and other kind of products, but in, in this area of AI and data, well, I, I would like to say that, you know, now more than ever, right, um, the transaction of healthcare is largely uh, a one that's driven by data. And, you know, essentially how well you can transact your healthcare really depends on how well you can use your data to give the outcomes to your patients. So to this point, I think there is a bright and wide open field for any aspiring uh, clinician to want to go into a clinician innovator track specializing in biomedical informatics and AI. So I, I, I'm, I would greatly encourage people to certainly look at this track very seriously because there mm. will be no shortage of demand for expertise in this area. Mm-hmm. And and kind of to that, okay, this is a semi-form question, so it might fall flat, but we'll just go for it anyway. I, I just wonder, you know, for pushing towards clinician innovator tracks, do, do you find that, or rather, or even more generally, adding on other things to your clinical practice, is it something that, you know, you naturally develop over the course of your career or how much do you have to fight or push to be, to wear multiple hats, to, to, to do things that are outside your, the remit of your clinical work? Do you have to like specifically carve out time and to intentionally pursue it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I just want to go back to what I said earlier. I think everything starts with your, your passion and your intention, right? So none of these things you do are going to be something that your 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 boss mandates you to do. Mm. Uh, th- these are all things that you do out of your own volition, you know, you, you something that you're passionate about. And because you're passionate about it, you are willing to initially make some sacrifices in terms of your time that you need to spend on something to develop it to a forum that it is sustainable. Mm-hmm. At some point of time, you would get real resources to undertake these projects and they, they can come in many forms. For example, grant funding. So I, I lost count of how many times I've tried to apply for grants and I won some and I lost quite a few. Mm-hmm. And these are things you have to fight for. It's none, none of these are given to you. And in terms of uh, time resources, I mean, we always measure uh, time resources in terms of FTEs. So it's only when you have some projects going that people recognize that they need to give you some uh, time resources away from your clinical work to undertake this type of informatics work that some FTE is provided. So this is this came to me by way of being the NUH uh, mm. the earlier years, which, which I still continue to be, to support bioinformatics in general in the Department of Surgery. Mm. But that soon evolved beyond that step because I was really just supporting the, the cluster as a whole in terms of AI projects because there were so few places where you could actually get data and you know sort of work on projects with computer scientists. So, and, and that's when I was given the role of, uh, of a group CTO to support this level of work throughout the cluster. So uh, again, you know, uh, like I mentioned earlier, these things contingent upon you having the passion to do something and these things will come to you if if you continue to to work hard at it and give you know deliver some results which one which will then lead to other uh, opportunities mm, yeah and it's yeah it's great to see how pursuing your passion then you know one thing leads to another and then you can also gradually carve out that space for yourself 
And I, you know, in, in the in the course of uh, doing my research for this interview, you know, prior to, to, to you being involved in, in even like medical devices, you were also a clinician scientist with like interest in antibody targets in tumors. And that was at a point when monoclonal antibodies were being developed and were, and were for non-Hodgkin lymphomas. And so that was kind of at the cutting edge of science. And it always strikes me that as a person, you've always kind of been interested in what's at the cutting edge. Would you say so? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I still do keep an uh, interest in that. And, you know, that, that stint I had, I actually spent a whole year out you know, doing um, basic science, you know, being in a lab and, you know, growing cells and doing all sorts of um, basic science experiments. It's taught me a lot. It's, it's a fantastic discipline. It was something that you needed to work very hard at and be single-mindedly focused. And I, I think I, I, I certainly benefited from having had that experience now because I, I completely understand how hard it is to undertake basic science. Uh, uh, as a clinician scientist, I, I just felt at that point of time that given the, the, the pressures of the surgical career, that innovator route might be more suitable for me to develop the things that I wanted to develop. But by no means is it the the end of uh, uh, basic science because it has now enabled me to support, for example, a great number of genomic-related AI work mm. that I would not have understood if I hadn't had the experience in the lab to to look at some of these work that others have been doing. Yeah. If you don't mind, let's take a detour to talk about taking a year out. So a lot of, I think is quite prevalent in in, say, in Singapore, especially where you just want to get through your training as fast as possible. But I wanted to hear your thoughts and reflections on, on the year out which you took and whether and how that was beneficial uh, or not for you. Okay, so in the first point, which is these year outs are not to be taken lightly because they, you certainly don't want to disrupt your career for things that you, you may not have thought about carefully enough. So when when some when contemplating taking a year out, it is perfectly acceptable to take a year out for the purposes of exploring an area that you want to go into. Because uh, I think I, I I say the same things to all my junior doctors, which is you know one year out of your thirty year career, right? It, it's a small price to pay mm. to find out whether or not something is suitable for you. Don't look at these as success, measure them as success or failures, but look at them as opportunities, right? So if you take a year out to do, say, a, a MCI course or MPH or any other number of courses that you plan to do, I, I think those are all very, very good foundational skills that one can pick up. And I strongly encourage uh, residents in their career to certainly think about taking a year out. And indeed, you know, even after you finish your clinical training, right, it is well-established practice in other, other parts of the world to have sabbaticals, to take, to take a year out to refresh your research directions and or to come out with new directions in in what you want to do with your career. So I, I think these are perfectly acceptable. And the only caveat to that is uh, it's important not to get lost when you take a year out. So some people take a year out and never come back. So that's not a good idea. So I would suppose that it's okay to take a year out to just discover what is your passion and what things that you do want to do well. Mm. And with that, having had having done that, depending on which stage of your career you're in, you can then um, you can then align your clinical career to the things that you are passionate about. Mm-hmm. 
just to dive a little bit further into that, what do you mean by being lost and how do you kind of guard against that? I, I think it's important that when you go to your year out or two years out to have fairly clear things about what you want to do. So mm. uh, it's exploratory in terms of the topic, but not in terms of the skill sets. So let's say in the year I took out, I was very clear that I wanted to learn a certain set of skills. Although the, the topic of investigation was um, was always, you know, as uh, any scientist will tell you, you set out to do A, you may end up with B mm-hmm. or X. Mm-hmm. So that's perfectly acceptable. There's, there's no saying that, you know, if it's so deterministic, you won't call it research, right? So it's okay to set out with A and end up with X, but you need to be able to have, acquire a certain skill set in that process, whether it's a skill set in, in formulating scientific questions or lab skills or in our case uh, you know, learning data science and data science related processes I think those are those are good skill sets to have and that would sort of ensure that you keep on track and the other point I wanted to make is to ensure that you are very closely aligned with the your supervisor or your mentor mm-hmm. during this um, year out because your mentor is everything you know, to you when you are growing up, you know, because they, they really tell you where where you're going wrong and what are some general goals you should set. Indeed, a good mentor will never tell you you should arrive at B, right? They'll just point you in a general direction and it's for you as, a, as an adult and as a mature thinker to come up with the innovative solutions to get to that, whichever point you want to get to. So, mm-hmm. so to, to avoid getting lost, uh, have a plan, and make sure you stay close to your supervisor. I think those are important points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would totally agree with the with the idea of clarity of purpose, and I suppose it also helps to to reassure whoever you need to get approval for 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 said year out if you have that kind of clarity of purpose and you know have some defined objectives of what you intend to achieve from it. But obviously, leaving yeah 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 sorry go ahead yeah absolutely. Yeah, I just want to interject here and mention one very, very important point that you just brought up, which is whoever is paying for this or who is supposed to be your head of department who's giving you the, the, the blessings to do your year out must recognize that this year out is not a, a surgeon that that sees you missing. I think that's a very important point. Mm-hmm. I, I know of many careers that have been sort of waylaid or distracted because the, the the aims of the department didn't quite align with the aims of the applicants um, where, whereby, you know, there was no plan for this person after they come back and certainly no plans to, to give you the right kind of recognition or, or reward for doing these things. So, you, you know, I will tell people that, you know, you won't, you don't want to go away doing a say a master's degree and come back being the same as everyone else. I, I think that's not that's mm-hmm. not um, sort of advantages uh, for people who want to go away. If you do go away and you come back, I think it's fair enough to expect that, that there might be something, a certain career path or plan for the person who has done this. I think that's fair enough. Yeah, mm, yeah and I suppose that's exactly what you mean by being in close contact with your supervisor or your superior. So having that yeah. So, so they must be kept appraised because if they don't know what you're doing, it's very hard for them to, to kind of, you know, keep you in on track and remember that you are doing these things not just for yourself, but you know, for the department or for the for the for the institution. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so as we kind of come towards the tail end of our interview, I kind of want to zoom out a little bit. You sit in a very privileged position because you you kind of look at the entirety of the healthcare system, but at the same time, you have uh, such you have built out over the years such a good understanding and working practical understanding of where the state of play of many of these technologies are. So you know, just looking forward to the next decade, what technological advances do you think are the most interesting and would make almost like if you to think big like a revolutionary impact on medicine or healthcare delivery okay so i, I think i can answer this in, in two parts i think from a, from a career perspective I, I always share this same anecdote right so if you you think about what we did 15 years ago in clinical care uh, we were writing on paper and you know mm. we were writing medical certificates and signing them off manually yeah and and you have porters bring large chunks of case notes for people to summarize. I think those days are over. Uh, now, we, we are electronic records. Uh, you know, at a click of a button, things get prescribed, medications get sent. This this is what happened in the last 10 to 15 years. Now, imagine what hap- what's going to happen in the next 10 to 15 years, right? I always ask the rhetorical question, which is, do you think there'll be less digitization or there'll be more digitization, right? Mm-hmm. The answer is kind of obvious. Right? So, with more digitization, what are we really talking about, right? We are really talking about moving away from a, a knowledge-intensive um, special uh, knowledge-intensive field of medicine where if you know more, you do better, to a insight-intensive in, field. So knowledge is no longer the premium in medicine. It's not, it's not about what you know. It's about how you take what you know to apply uh, it to improve your patient's care. And in real terms, what it means is, uh, well, there are many areas you can talk to this. Uh, so for example, in clinical care and oncology, if you can get better outcomes with, say, lower doses of chemotherapy due to better predictive algorithms that does dosing and drug selection, mm-hmm. that's a huge difference. That's a that's a game changer. I mean, that, that's the difference between people dying from recurrences and or not, you see, and having side effects or not. So I think that's a huge difference. And certainly this is an area that, at least in oncology, that we are actively pursuing. In terms of service delivery, you know, automation, AI, would really transform the way the patients interact with healthcare. So I, I can sort of just uh, highlight a few areas that I feel that would disrupt healthcare. I think in the area of patient services, certainly I feel that chatbots would come to a point of maturity that would completely disrupt the way you know, we interact with our healthcare systems, right? You know, currently most people call up call centers to mm-hmm. make appointments, change their appointments. Some may use an app or things like that. But it still has a certain amount of navigation and a certain amount of friction towards uh, working, getting into uh, getting these services done quickly. So with better chatbots, we can now address all these issues without that high friction or high transactional cost mm-hmm. uh, and certainly provide a whole range of services without navigation. So you don't you don't you do not need to go to multiple web pages, download a few apps before you can do any of these, right? It's literally you just chat with this bot. Mm. And whatever you need to be solved can be done in five turns or, or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. So from a from a service perspective, I think this is where AI would actually disrupt the way we work. 
in our interactions to patients. Uh, we have had the opportunity to have worked with a number of chat, uh, at least one chatbot. We are developing one on, on our own, and we kind of take all these experiences to improve the way we deliver our care to our patients. So that's another area to think about. And maybe it's worthwhile to just expand on the, the use of AI in clinical care, where I would say that it, it, once we reduce the kind of friction in which we clinicians and researchers have to develop these tools, I, I, I anticipate a widespread adoption of AI tools to automate many of the things that we do right now. So everything from as as you probably well where things like summarizing, doing discharge summaries, doing doing scoring systems, all these can be automated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and indeed we can go beyond just automation. We can do predictive analytics with AI things. So things that we never could previously never do, like predicting the risk of deterioration, length of stay, things like that. So these are things that are services that were never available to us and have a certain impact both clinically and administratively. So, you know, to kind of sum it up, right, I think that in the next 10 years, we would go away from clinicians spending so much time looking at their screens, right, to clinicians literally having more time to interact with our patients and, you know, relying on some of these automation and AI to do some of the work that has that would have taken out a lot of our eyeball time at this point. Mm-hmm. And I'm very sorry, just to put you really on the spot, if you were in your 20s or maybe early 30s again, and you had a free pass to you know, take a year or however many years out you wanted to pursue any one of these, um, what, what would you do? Yeah, great, great question. So come up with, coming up rather with an, a curriculum that covers biomedical, informatics and AI. And it would be a short enough course for... Uh, undergraduate uh, medical students to take uh, for a year or a postgraduate student, uh, student to take part-time for two years, this would this would be the ideal thing to do. Because if you imagine, right, in what, 10 years from now, what kind of skill sets are in demand? I mean, of course, basic clinical skill sets are always, will always be in demand. But in terms of um, AI and digital medicine, you know, the ability to independently use data and come up with algorithms will be in great demand because mm. everything, so many thousands of applications would have come up from this kind of uh, project. Right? And we're just seeing the beginning of it. So uh, my, my hope is that for a, for a young person in this field, really seriously look at doing a, a master's type or a certification type, or initially a certification type courses in in uh, biomedical informatics and then go towards a, a degree course. It, it, it's not going to be a, a five-year degree course, right? It's going to be a, a one-year, two-year course, which will give you the correct skill sets to execute these projects independently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. And I will be the first person to volunteer if, if, if you create a degree course like or a master's program like this. Sounds very, very interesting. Well, uh, yeah, so you will keep people informed about this. It's really in the mail right now. And mm. There's a uh, there's an academic process to, to doing this, uh, but we are certainly looking forward to this. And of course, we have, for now, a couple of years, tried to send people to various courses around the world as well. But, you know, given our travel restrictions now, uh, it's become less feasible. But by no means are our 
residents, you know, put off by it, they are they're already doing projects. So to them, it, it's not some, it's, you know, it's not something of a of a loss, but really it's just a hiatus before they can get some more formal training in this area. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. So final question: What kind of advice would you have for young people and i mean this quite generally not just say doctors but young people in general who might be at the start of your careers okay i i'm just gonna speak on the singaporean terms sure um because clearly around the world there are different different kind of uh, backgrounds and uh, opportunities but in singapore i think we are in a very superb position to to go into healthcare, digital medicine kind of uh, arena, because of uh, a number of reasons. Uh, first, I think at, at the at the from a basic education point of view, you know we are we are pretty pretty strong and pretty stable. And you know if people want to do uh, computing or or rather biomedical informatics as a as a career, right? There will be a job for them, not just in Singapore, but in the whole region, because mm. you know, in this area, it, it, it's just constantly growing, and healthcare is not going to get smaller by any stretch of the measure, unlike the airline industry. So, so certainly there's a bright future for people who want to work in this area. And secondly, if you think about the kind of kind of technical expertise that Singapore provides to the rest of the world. You know, right now, of course, most people know that we have a financial center. For many years, we have invested in life science. We have seen some results coming out of investing in life science. But certainly in the next 10 years, uh, if we invest in digital medicine and train people in digital medicine, these are skill sets that, that will be in great demand, not just in Singapore, but throughout the rest of the world. Uh, and we are, we are poised to be in a great position to leverage it because uh, we kind of see an intersection between um, the rich and the poor countries as well as the East and the West. Mm. Mm. Dr. Niam, thank you so much for your time. This has been such an interesting and fun conversation and our hour has, has literally flown by. I have found super inspiring how, how you have just from your passion and seeing one idea which is you know seeing the need in terms of breaking down research silos and having a, a database for everyone you've just uh, taken step by step and then really built this into a very useful system so thank, thank you for sharing <laughs> thank you for sharing all your insights with us uh, yeah, thanks, for, thanks, for, thanks for yeah thanks for for giving me this opportunity to share and just i suppose final words is yeah the world's your oyster and, and it's very bright for especially people who want to do healthcare it and i, would, I strongly encourage people who want to go in this area to to really look at it and look into it and you know go and explore it in great detail and dive in if you feel that this is right for you okay uh, thank you very much dr Niam. right thank you This podcast is produced in conjunction with Catalyst, which is a clinician-focused startup incubator and co-working space in Singapore. To find out more about Catalyst, visit their website at thecatalyst.com.sg. Special thanks to Dr. Reina Damawan and the team at Catalyst for their help in making this episode of the Alternative CV Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, do consider subscribing if you haven't done so already or sharing this episode with your friends. I'd love for more people to benefit from this. If you've got something to say, you can always reach out to me at poll, that's P-A-U-L, at alternativecv.fm. Leave a review, get in touch. 
pick up the conversation, anything you want to talk about. You can also find show notes about everything that we've talked about and any references we made at alternativecv.fm. See you next week. Bye.